0: Well, let's turn to Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. You do it and I'll do it too, because I just realized my my bookmark is still in Ephesians chapter 6. (laughs) So uh, I promise I've read Luke chapter 1 this week, though. I just didn't have my bookmark (laughs) in it. All of my Advent messages uh, this season are going to come from Luke's Gospel. I, I uh, usually do that different differently, and there's kind of a variety of readings from different places in Scripture. I'm going to walk this year right through uh, a sequence of passages here in Luke one, and then hopping over into uh, on the fourth Sunday of Advent over to the Christmas story in Luke chapter two. But we're, we're going to do a little, we'll get a little bit more of the complete narrative out of Luke one uh, in these weeks to follow but I want to speak this morning on the subject of hope through hardship hope through hardship I'm going to ask if you're able to stand in honor of the reading of God's word out of reverence for him attention to his voice as we expect him to speak through the scriptures reading out of the English Standard Version hear the word of the Lord Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, we thank you for your word now as always. And we open it now, as always, with expectation that you have something to say to us and it. you have something to say to us as a congregation, as a people, but also on an individual level. And you are able to do that in a supernatural way out of one mouth for one message to be spoken and yet for you to minister it by your spirit to 200 people in 200 different ways. And Lord, you know my earnest desire today for this passage of scripture, for this message to be helpful, even as our time is limited. And so God, would you cause it to be helpful by your grace? And so we ask you would speak, O Lord, your word by your spirit, through your servant to your people, for your glory, and for our good. Lord, would you move me out of the way and use my voice as your vessel. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, this is a, uh, a topic as I, that, that I'll wade into a little bit today that, that literally could be a sermon series, and uh, frankly, probably deserves to be at a certain point. I'm just going to try for that not to be today. Okay, for a whole sermon series to to get crammed into uh, one. But in in church tradition, the first Sunday in Advent is the first day in the liturgical year. I made reference to this last week, but it's a sort of Christian New Year's Day in a certain respect. The first Sunday of the liturgical year. And we begin the liturgical year with a message of hope. We begin the new church year every year with a message of hope because Jesus came and he's coming again. But consider for a minute the contrast between that and sort of our cultural New Year's Day as we'll celebrate it in just a few weeks because in that case new year's day we'll will receive it as kind of a time of new beginnings right we'll try to get a fresh start we will set new goals and resolve to do better to try harder right for about 9 days But at Advent, (laughs) at Advent, we renew our hope. See, this, the liturgical new year, we renew our hope in light of what Christ has done, not in light of what we're going to try to do. You feel the contrast of that? And that's more than just a trivial observation that I'm making about Advent versus New Year's because I think it holds up a mirror to us to show us something important about how we really view life in some significant ways, specifically how we view life's hardships and suffering. And so I want to focus this morning on one particular aspect of this passage uh, of, of the angel's announcement here to Mary and to see how it offers a message of hope through hardship. And it's going to be brief out of necessity. And as I said, there's so much more that would deserve to be said on the topic of hope and of hardship and suffering. But make no mistake, this announcement from the angel, is good news. Lest the title of my message uh, suggest otherwise. The the message, the announcement from the angel is good news and it's calls for joy. And it'll become clear in the weeks ahead as we read on about Mary's response to that and kind of the way events unfold. It'll become clear that that's the way Mary received it. It's good news and she rejoices at it. Because an angel came and announced to Mary that she was going to conceive and bear a son. That's good news to a young woman who wants to have children. But not just any son, right? But she's going to give birth to the Messiah. He doesn't call him that specifically, didn't use that term, but that's certainly who he describes. Her son was going to grow up to be a great man, who would sit on the throne of David forever and reign in a kingdom that will have no end. In fact, the Holy Spirit himself will come upon her, as it said, overshadow her, cause her to conceive this child so that he will be called holy. Son of the Most High, it says, and then in another case, Son of God. This is, this is the announcement of who she's going to give birth to. And you think about just on that level for a young girl, a young woman from an outlying little town of no reputation and her, a woman of no means whatsoever, a poor young woman who has really no reason to expect that anything noteworthy is going to come of her life. She's been told she'll give birth to the most important man who ever lived. Well, that's good news, isn't it? That's cause to rejoice. In fact, very often this reading uh, shows up later in Advent as we talk about love and joy because it is a message of that that strikes that sort of tone. But this will make her extraordinary like no woman who ever lived because she's going to give birth and raise and love and care for the greatest man who ever walked the face of the earth. It would make her life meaningful in a way she had never imagined. Good news, cause for rejoicing for sure and that's really the theme of the passage but I want to really focus on One particular aspect of this, I alluded to in the newsletter article that some of you may may have seen um, yesterday afternoon or evening. But he says in verse 28 to her, in making this announcement, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And then in verse 30, he uses that word again. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. I think it's actually quite interesting, her reaction. If you have a Bible open, you see in verse 29 there, it says that she was greatly troubled at this saying. Now, it is almost universally the case. I don't know if it's 100% of the time, but the, the typical response when an angel appears to somebody is they are struck with fear you know very often fall down on their face in some cases even bow down because they think it's clearly somebody from heaven who deserves to be worshiped it it it, the uh, the appearance of an angel almost always gets that reaction when we read it in the bible but this doesn't say she was greatly troubled at the appearance of an angel it says she was greatly troubled at this saying What's saying? Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Now that's a curious reaction, isn't it? And it's not really explained here. But why that troubled her. To hear from an angel. O favored one, the Lord is with you. And presumably what he went on to say about that she's going to conceive and bear a son and who her son is going to be, um, in large part, that uh, answered her questions or it resolved her troubled feeling, if you will. But it, it is an interesting reaction as she discerned what sort of greeting this might be, it says. But I wanted to, again, sort of just zoom in on The concept of the favor of God. He speaks to her uh, uh, of her in that way. Oh, favored one, you have found favor with God. As Christians, we talk about favor fairly often, and and it's probably one of those things that's sort of like you know Christianese, as they say it. We use certain language that we we kind of know what it means. If somebody outside uh, the church wouldn't necessarily know what we're speaking of when we when we speak of the favor of God, although. The favor is not uniquely a Christian concept, right? Uh, That's a familiar term, but we speak of it in ways that's familiar inside the church in a way that it might not be outside. But we use that language fairly often. Uh, We we ask for it, we ask for God's favor, or we point it out when we think we've experienced it. Things have gone well, and so we might say, um, yeah, he's really living in, you know, God's favor, experience in God's favor. Occasionally, I pray this way I think others do, when praying for missionaries or other Christian servants. I find myself doing this, in particular when it comes to somebody going and doing the work of the Lord. And interestingly enough, this past Wednesday at our staff meeting, as we prayed for April uh, prior to her departure, we prayed for God's favor. Toward her, And we were specific about the ways that we wanted that to be shown. That uh, open up doors for the gospel to be shared for the team. That um, any government officials who would have any influence in the way that whole trip unfolded along the way. That they would find favor with those authorities, with other individuals who could... Uh, again, open doors of opportunity to him in that way. Favor with God, favor with men, that he would protect them, right? Allow for their itinerary to go as planned already. It hasn't gone quite as planned. But my point is just to say, like, I, I, I pray that way, uh, not... Uncommonly, and I think many other people do as well. And I think when we pray that, what we're asking for very often is this full orbed blessing of God, right? We pray that things may, may, may go well all together. And those, by the way, are fine things to pray for, they're fine things to desire, and they're fine things to ask God for. We want it to go well. For ourselves and for our friends and loved ones, we want it to go well for the church. And it's certainly in the heart of God for his people that things may go well for them generally. The book of Deuteronomy is littered with that phrase. But the evidence of God's favor is not necessarily that everything is going well. And that's what I wanted to lean on for just just a few minutes this morning as we pass over this passage of scripture because if we if we pray that god will show his favor and that will be evidenced by being kind of blessed in every way we might deceive ourselves into thinking that therefore the evidence of god's favor is that we're blessed in every way that everything's going well our material needs are met Our family's doing well. Our health is good. We're full of joy and and life is filled with purpose and meaning and so on and so forth. That might be our expectation and that is not necessarily the evidence of God's favor. It certainly wasn't the case for Mary that everything was going to go splendidly well. Have you thought about that? Oh favored one the Lord is with you. You have found favor with God. Her life would immediately begin to get more difficult because of God's favor. Immediately her husband would be suspicious give thoughts to to divorcing her it says in Matthew chapter 1 he would consider putting her away he's not so sure about this story of the Holy Spirit overshadowing her or maybe he's just not maybe he's just not sure he wants to live with the drama I I don't really know All, all of what's behind that but Immediately, this favored status that Mary has been told of means her husband will want to divorce her. Surely there are lots of other people. Don't you know when she got back to Nazareth? Showing a little bit? I mean, I just have to imagine... The women in the first century, you know, who were her friends, family members, you know, those people that she lived closely with. I would assume people in the first century aren't all that different from people in the 21st century. And they start gossiping a little bit, think she's lying. I don't want to speculate too much about that. But the point is, it immediately got more uncomfortable for Mary, not more comfortable. She and Joseph, we learn in Matthew chapter 2, would have to flee to Egypt when Jesus was a little infant or toddler somewhere in those Early years, they'd have to flee to Egypt because there was a plot by Herod to kill every child under two. You remember the story? And the only crown she would ever see her son wear this son of hers who was going to sit on the throne of David forever, he'd have a kingdom without end, and the only crown she would ever see him wear was a crown of thorns. As he suffered the most brutal and humiliating execution imaginable. There was a lot of hardship that came from being the mother of Jesus. But as God's favored one, she was chosen for the hardship, not spared from it. Now, I want to interject here something that's that's not in my notes. I'll come back to that. But I, I hope you, I hope this resonates a bit for you, and I hope that you understand. Uh how we might have a problem. We we might not really have very good, very much room in our Christian thinking for for this kind of story to unfold. That one who is among the most favored people in history, right? How, How much more favored could you be than to get to give birth to the savior of the world? And that the most favored person of God would suffer such great hardship because of that favor. See, we we don't always have a category for that in our thinking. In the American church, because we have heard and immersed ourselves in an American gospel that really expects that living the life of the so-called victorious Christian means that we're going to put away all of our adversities and our suffering. And that suffering itself is a sign that we hadn't quite mastered, you know, the Christian life quite well enough. But if we just keep on believing and making our confessions of faith and so on, that that maybe one day we will. We've immersed ourselves in a message of that sort such that we don't really even have a place for somebody who can be both favored and suffer because of that favor. But as a favored one of God, she was chosen for the hardship, not spared from it. And the same was true of the Apostle Paul. You may remember at uh, his conversion in Acts chapter 9 where he's been an enemy of the church and he's persecuted the church and then on his way to do more persecuting, he gets just arrested by God, (laughs) right? God saves him in spite of himself, blinds him, tells him to go into town and see this man Ananias. And he tells Ananias about Saul, Because Ananias, if you remember, he doesn't particularly want to have anything to do with Saul. He's heard of Saul. Saul's bad news. Lord, I'm not sure this is a good idea for you to save this guy at all. But if it, even if it is, I don't believe I want to be the person that you use. That was kind of Ananias' position on it. But what the Lord told Ananias in Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16 of Saul, who would become known as the Apostle Paul, he says, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. He's a chosen instrument above most other instruments of that sort, right? I mean, the apostle who wrote more of the New Testament than any other individual, chosen to suffer for Christ's sake. Chosen for the hardship, not spared from it. And part of the the message to us, part of the reminder to us, is that God's ultimate desire is to make you holy, not to make you comfortable. He says in 1 Thessalonians, this is the will of God, your sanctification. God's will for you is that you become more holy, that you become more like Jesus. In fact, he he said in the opening of Ephesians 1, we just finished that study together, that uh, we're chosen before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. What he is doing is making for himself a people Who are conformed to the likeness of Christ, and that's His desire for you and for me, far more than it is your comfort. As a matter of fact, the refining process that is going to make us more holy is also going to, at times going to make us extremely uncomfortable. But God desires our holiness not our comfort. And yet, for us, just like for Mary, see Mary did did not at any point give any indication along the way, and we're not told a whole lot about Mary in the New Testament. She didn't give any indication along the way that she regretted right this station in life she rejoiced at it and she's going to rejoice even more in the in the coming passages because there's that's a message of profound hope a woman who has no idea if her, in what sense her life is going to have any meaning or purpose in fact probably at in in, in her place and her time would have reasonably assumed her life wouldn't have much meaning of purpose that would register at least on this earth. And she's been told the most extreme opposite of that, that her life is going to have the greatest meaning and the greatest purpose. But the hope was to be found ultimately in what Jesus would do eternally because his kingdom is not of this world. And the end of this world is not the end of the story. Because it's actually not even really accurate to say the end of this world. It's the end of this age. Because at the end of this age, he will make a new world. And all the things that right now, those who are living on the margins of hopelessness, as I said, all of those who are living in a place of despair, whose whose life feels like it's frozen over, if you will, All those people struggling to find something to hope in. All the ways in which we wish the world would be better are going to come true when Jesus finishes making a new heaven and a new earth. And see, our our real hope rests in the fact that that story is our story. That our hardship and our suffering, for most of us, it's not even going to last our lifetime, right? For some, it does. There are some people who have uh, medical conditions of one sort or another, that, that apart from a radical miracle of God, they're, they're, you know, they, they're going to live with it, they have lived with it. Um, all of their lives and there are any number of situations the hardships with which people live throughout the course of their life for most of us whatever it is that's making life hard right now and if it's not right now six months from now whatever that is that hardship isn't going to last a lifetime for most of us but even the ones that do that's not the end of the story And our hope rests in the fact that Jesus has accomplished the victory that is ours. And that our our hardship isn't final and it's also not pointless. Because part of what our hardship is doing is refining us. It is actually, God is using it to accomplish in us the very thing that ultimately is going to be true of us, that he's making us into the the very people he wants us to be. Our suffering's not forever, and it's also not meaningless. But we live in a culture, of course, that really has, holds out the ultimate purpose of being happy, right? I mean, that the, the, our pursuit in life is personal happiness, personal peace and comfort and so on, such that hardship is a frustrating, exasperating disruption to life as we imagined it and wanted it to be. We live in that kind of culture and we as the church in that kind of culture have assimilated that message in ways I think that we don't even realize. That somehow by God's power and strength we're going to put all of our hardships to rest and live happily ever after. But even as we struggle Even as we suffer, it is not meaningless and it is not hopeless. We can be favored ones of God and face intense hardship. I am quite sure some in this room right now feel like they're in that position. you might not feel so favored because of exactly the reasons I'm speaking about but you feel the hardship and part of the, part of the assurance I, I, I want for this to give us today um, is that there is hope real hope through the hardship and beyond the hardship because we are walking in God's favor. Because we are favored by God. And part of the good work that he is doing in us, he's accomplishing through the refiner's fire. He's accomplishing through discomfort rather than through our comfort greetings O favored one the Lord is with you and there is boundless hope to be found always in him because of who he is and because of what he has accomplished let's pray Father, we do thank you for that assurance. And at risk of just sucking the ho, ho, ho right out of our Christmas season as we step right into it, Lord, it is good for us to acknowledge the reality that there is never and will never be life on this earth in this age that is not attended by hardship and suffering. And Lord, it's our heart's desire that we not now or at any time be rendered hopeless because of that, that we might not feel abandoned by you, or disfavored. But we might be assured all the more of your favor even as we go through those shadowed valleys and through those fiery furnaces. So Lord, in whatever ways... One by one, those of us in this room need to hear and receive that truth and have it ministered to our hearts. Would you do so today? In Jesus' name, amen.